This is the MRC podcast coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. Hello, I'm Nick Cater. Matt Ridley is a zoologist, a conservative peer in the House of Lords and an expert in the mating habits of the common pheasant. Today I'll be talking to him about none of those things. Instead, I'll be talking to him about his unfashionable view that the world is not going to hell in a handcart. Quite the opposite, in fact. Life for most people, most of the time, whether rich or poor, is getting better. Matt revisits that theme in his latest book, How Innovation Works. But as he explains, technology is not without its critics. And many of the great advances in history have occurred in spite of, not because of, governments. Matt, join me for this discussion on the Menzies Research Centre's water cooler webcast. Matt, can I put a statement to you that I heard, and you tell me what's wrong with this. I was in a one of those endless sort of round table meetings recently, and uh, somebody got up and said, look, the government has to invest more in the innovation sector. Now, I can see two things wrong with that sentence. What about you? Well, uh, government's really bad at innovation. Um, not only does it fail to innovate within government itself, when you think about the institutions of government, they've changed very little over the years, uh, but also when it does uh, set out to stimulate innovation, it quite often uh, picks losers rather than winners because it tends to fund whoever has its ear rather than paying attention to what is going to work or what the market wants. Uh, there's a very nice uh, sort of parable of this go- dating way back to 1903 when the government heavily funded a uh, first aeroplane. Um, it was by a guy called Samuel Langley. He got a huge grant from the US government. He did the whole thing in secret. Uh, he built it. It was a very large machine. He launched it. It flew 20 feet and flopped into the water. Ten days later, two bicycle mechanics from Ohio, who'd done it entirely on their own, uh, but learning from every experiment that had ever been done with gliders and other devices around the world, um, gradually and incrementally uh, had put together something that did work. So that was a nice parable of what happens when government tries to do innovation and the private sector uh, beats it at it. Now, of course, given that government pours money into science and technology, it would be surprising if it didn't sometimes come up with innovations that we can use, like GPS and SatNav and things like that came out of government programs. Um, But uh, it does it get good value for money by supporting innovation? On the whole, government doesn't. No. I, I think the other thing that's wrong with that sentence for me, that, 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 that sentiment, is that to talk of an innovation sector sounds rather strange to me. It seems to me that every smart business is innovating all the time. Your local coffee shop is innovating if they want to keep in business. That's right. And uh, I think what government often means by the innovation sector tends to end up meaning universities. Uh, In other words, there is this general view that innovation starts in academic institutions, spills out into the commercial world gradually, uh, and that it's all about spin-off from academic research. Actually, while that does happen, it's surprisingly rare. It's just as often, if not more often, true that what happens is industry tinkers and changes the way it does things, whether it's, you know, using less material in a a drinks can or... um, uh, tweaking with a video game or something like that. These, these things, are, these kind of innovations are happening all the time uh, in there in the commercial world. And often 
academics get involved to explain what's going on. So, you know, the people who designed the steam engine eventually had to come up with a science of thermodynamics to find out what they'd done. Uh, it's something similar in the dye industry and the chemical industry. The people who developed vaccines had no idea about the immune system for hundreds of years before uh, it was understood. So the idea that you have to start with academic research is also a big mistake that government often makes. Yeah, I mean, in the book, you, you go through a fascinating long list of, of uh, innovations some of which people might have thought of, others which you don't think of as innovations. Um, but in almost every case, I think it's true, or in vast majority of cases at least, that the innovator was not necessarily a scientist. Uh, and more than that, it's very hard to pick one in innovator for each innovation, isn't it? Well, the, one of the points I'm trying to make in this book is that uh, it's much more of a team sport than we generally recognize. We give a Nobel Prize or a patent to one individual and we tell stories about him having a sudden insight one day and jumping out of his bath and running down the street shouting Eureka or whatever it might be. Um, and it very, very rarely happens that way. It's much more collective enterprise, much more people sharing ideas, much more uh, about um, people standing on the shoulders of their predecessors and indeed contributing things that, that came afterwards. So the way we tell stories about innovation tends to uh, give the impression that, that you need one or two geniuses who have particular capabilities that the rest of us don't have, something called creativity that, that other people don't have. And I think that's a pity. I think we should tell people that anyone can be an innovator, that what you have to do is share your ideas with other people, learn from your mistakes, change direction if you, ha if you have to, uh, change your mind about what you're inventing uh, if, if necessary, um, do a lot of trial and error. That's what really works uh, in producing innovations. That's been the story of most innovations uh, over time. The uh, other thing in your book which, which came across quite strongly was the how much better a free market system is for innovation. And this goes back for me to something you, you covered in your previous book, The Evolution of Almost Everything, when you made the point that the free market is evolutionary, that things happen in an evolutionary manner, whereas a centrally planned economy is playing God. Explain that. Yeah. Well, in, in the end, what socialists and other central planners are trying to do is be creationist. They're saying, look, if there's one person in charge, the world will be an ordered and organized and well-organized place and we will get the results. So let's put one person in charge of making sure everybody in London has enough lunch tomorrow. OK, um, this is an example taken from Frederick Bastiat, who talked about how to seed, feed a city like Paris. Um, and if there's one person in charge of feeding Londoners lunch tomorrow, there are 10 million people in London every day, not at the moment, maybe, but in a normal, normal conditions, there are 10 million people eating lunch every day. How on earth do we make sure there's enough food in the right place and at the right time? Uh, and the answer is um, that if there was a London lunch commissioner, it would be catastrophic. He would make the wrong decisions. He would not have enough information. He would not know what people wanted. Whereas the market system evolves a solution to this problem by continually doing trial and error, by some cafe ordering a little more avocado and a little less smoked salmon one day, and then realizing they made a mistake and learning from it, and maybe going bust if they make a big mistake and somebody else taking over their market. That's what I mean by evolution. It's a form of natural selection uh, and 
we are still far too creationist in the way we look at the real world. When we look at the natural world, we now say all this beautiful structure and order and pattern um, that you see in a rainforest or something like that didn't come about because one bloke was in charge. When we look at the human world, we still seem to make this mistake of thinking that it only works if somebody's in charge. Yeah, and one thing about this evolution is that uh, things evolve not necessarily according to known science, but according to when there's a necessity arises and, and there's a market. And you draw this example of the wheeled suitcase and point out that we were landing on the moon before we were successfully developed a, a commercial wheeled suitcase. Why was that? Well, uh, what I was looking at there was why some innovations come along too late. In other words, why didn't we invent the wheeled suitcase a lot earlier than we did? It's not really to the 1980s that, that people have wheels on their suitcases. And in the end, I use that example because it's a relatively rare one. It's very hard to think of something that we, we should have invented decades before we did. But even that one, when you think about it hard enough, you think, well, hang on, um, Airports were quite small. Porters were quite numerous with luggage carts. Uh, wheels that you would have put on suitcases in the 1960s, 1970s would have been big and clunky. And actually, quite a lot of people tried wheeled suitcases in the 1920s onwards, uh, and they never caught on. So I think, actually, that's, quite, that's an example that kind of proves the rule, that when the, when the moment is ripe, we will solve the problem if it's soluble. But you can't, for example, invent the search engine until you've invented the internet. You know, you can't put the cart before the horse, uh, as it were. So uh, often technologies come along when the previous technology that enables them has reached the, the point that it's ready. So on the whole, I'm impressed by the fact that we don't leave ideas on the shelf for decades or centuries that, that we should have invented earlier. I mean, sure, you can say we could have had industrial revolution in, in ancient Greece if we'd really pulled our finger out. I say we, uh, the ancient Greeks had really pulled their fingers out. But, but um, uh, I, I don't, I, on, on the whole, it's quite an interesting phenomenon that, that, uh, that when the time is right. And by the way, this leads to simultaneous invention. So 21 different people came up with the idea of the light bulb independently in the 1870s. Why was that? Is that because some deity had decided to implant the idea of the light bulb in 21 different brains? No, it's because uh, the contributing technologies, the glass blowing, the vacuum pump, the, the use of electricity, the use of electrical grids, these things had come together to the point where it was just inevitable that people would use glowing filaments in glass bulbs as a way of illuminating rooms. Same is true of the search engines in the 1990s. If Sergey Brin had never met Larry Page, we'd still have search engines. Um, there were lots around in the early 1990s once the internet had reached um, saturation point, it was inevitable that, that search would be invented. But weirdly, nobody saw it coming. In the 1980s, there are very, very few and very vague predictions of the importance of search, let alone the idea that this is how you're going to make money out of the internet. This is going to be the most profitable product on the internet as a search engine. Nobody saw that coming. So this stuff looks incredibly obvious in retrospect, but surprisingly difficult to spot in prospect. Yeah, let's, let's pursue this, this point about the evolutionary process of innovation and that it, 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 there comes a natural point in which the, the, uh, the new innovation is ready for use. 
I think this is something we have to take note of when we're talking about energy. You know, around the world, I think the British government is committed to zero emissions by 2050. A lot of Western governments are. The Australian government is holding back from that position, and wisely so, because unless I've missed something, we do not have the innovation yet which could allow us to get to that position without totally shutting down our economy and going back to living caves. So what are the dangers of putting targets like that, uh, you know, hoping somehow that the evolution of, of technology will work fast enough, but not actually knowing? I think that's a very good example of um, a, a huge policy mistake uh, made with the, the hope that you can uh, drive a technological change. Um, because um, it simply is not feasible to fly aeroplanes, for example, without carbon-based fuels uh, at the moment, and it probably won't be for a very long time. Electrical aeroplanes are a non-starter, and there is no prospect of them becoming one. Uh, likewise, in the UK, we heat our homes with gas. Um, that's a far more efficient and cheaper way of doing it than heating them with electricity. And though we could heat them with electricity, where are we going to get the electricity from? Well, there's a huge lobby from the renewable industry, which is making a ton of money out of subsidies for renewables, which says, oh, we can do it with windmills and solar panels. But as Australia and other countries have discovered, and the UK discovered last year, if you have too much uh, unpredictable solar and wind energy on your grid, the grid quite often collapses and you you you, you become very unstable and unpredictable. And what do you do when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine? And worse than that, the energy density of wind is extremely low. So you've got to cover more than the entire country of the UK uh, with wind turbines to get enough energy. Well, that's going back to the medieval habit of using the landscape to generate your electricity. We'd like to get away from that. We'd like to have point sources of electricity, very concentrated ones. Now, we have got one technology that could deliver um, uh, low-carbon uh, energy on scale, and that's called nuclear. But the environmental movement's mostly against that anyway. And besides which, nuclear is an industry that has been cut off from innovation for about half a century because of over-regulation, the immensely complicated rules and regs that have to go into the design of a new reactor uh, before any uh, construction begins and that cannot be changed once you start construction mean that it is impossible to do the normal trial and error process, the normal changing of your mind as you're going along, that is how innovators work. So we're stuck with a 1950s version of nuclear power when we should have a 2020s version using molten salt and all these other technologies. So the first country to reform nuclear regulation so it's just as safe but more flexible will, I think, win a bonanza. And by the way, that's Canada at the moment. Well, that's interesting. We're watching that very carefully. I mean, Australia, of course, produces a great deal of uranium, not that we need very much in each of these reactors. And we are perfectly placed for it, but I think we are. We are. There's promising technology there, right? But we're not there yet. And and this is an example where basically governments are very poor at innovation, but they're quite good at stopping it when they want to for putting too many regulations in the way. Um, I I write in the book about the degree to which uh, there are forces resisting innovation. Uh, companies like like to stop innovation too. 
because they they don't like uh, competition on the whole, and they often lobby governments to to put barriers in the way of innovation. But governments uh, have a track record of standing in the way of innovation from the Ming Empire to um, the present day to the European attitude to genetically modified crops, for example, uh, again and again and again, governments lobbied by special interests place huge barriers in the way of innovation. Um, I write in the, in the book about the story of coffee. Coffee was an innovation in the 1500s and 1600s, and pretty well everywhere in Europe and the Middle East, rulers tried to ban it. They tried to forbid the drinking of coffee. Two reasons. One, they were being lobbied by the beer and wine industry, saying, hang on, we don't like this new competitor. Uh, and two, um, and by the way, that, those competitors tended to use medical arguments. You know, They would get some specious bit of research from a doctor saying that coffee is bad for you, which, of course, it can be, You know, but so can wine and beer. Um, the other reason that governments tried to ban coffee in the, 15th, the 16th and 17th century uh, was because coffee was drunk in coffee houses. And people would have conversations in coffee houses. Indeed, they'd probably have quite animated conversations if they were drinking a lot of coffee. And some of those animated conversations would be about whether the king was doing a good job or not. Uh, and the king didn't like that. So there's a wonderful proclamation from King Charles II in England in 1672, shutting down all the coffee houses of London, for the very explicit reason that people are telling lies in them. He's basically trying to outlaw fake news. And... Um, uh, that's so, and, and you know, you, that we can laugh about that. We can say, you know, that was 400 years ago. But actually, if you look at what's happened with a lot of gene-based technologies in recent years in agriculture, etc., it's a very similar story. Utterly specious reasons why governments try to stop innovation happening at the behest of special interests. Oh yeah, it's happening all the time, I, and I've noticed this very, very much during the the COVID-19 pandemic, we don't yet know what, what, what the best way of, um, of curing this uh, virus or curing the effects of this virus will be or whether indeed we'll get a vaccine. But a lot of people, a lot of governments and a lot of individuals have been very quick to rule out certain options, often on quite political grounds, it seems to me, without actually giving them a chance. Is that your impression? Yeah, I'm afraid there's a phenomenon out there, which is that if Donald Trump was in favour of something, then everyone else has to be against it, which, um, uh, you know, as a rule of thumb, may have some validity, but it, it doesn't help when, you know, of course, he might be right about something. Um, uh, so it, 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 I am concerned by just how political all these discussions are. Why can't we have a straightforward conversation about does this drug work? Does this vaccine have a prospect or not? I think what we're finding in this epidemic uh, is the cost of not doing enough innovation. We tend to think we live in a world with a lot of innovation. Actually, we're living through something of an innovation famine. If you leave aside the digital industry, we've really slowed down the rate at which we produce new ideas and new concepts and new devices. Uh, and that's particularly true, I think, in the medical arena. We have not developed a platform for producing vaccines against new infectious diseases that we should have done. Just in the last few years, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation was set up by the Wellcome Trust and the Gates Foundation um, to do exactly this, to say, look, next time a pandemic comes along, we should be ready with a vaccine pretty well ready to go. Um, but they only set that up a few years ago. That should have been done 20 years ago, and we'd be then be in a much better position. 
I write in the book about the development of the whooping cough vaccine in the 1930s, which took four years from start to finish and was very efficiently done by two rather remarkable women in their spare time. Uh, that would be quite good going even today in terms of developing a, a vaccine. So we have neglected um, the development of vaccines, the development of medical devices. It takes up to 70 months to get approval for a new medical device, including diagnostic devices for testing for viruses, for example, um, uh, which is far too long. And the consequence of that is that entrepreneurs have gone off and developed video games instead of medical devices. You published a great book in 2010, which I think really brought you to a lot of people's attention, uh, The Rational Optimist. And uh, I thought it was just such a refreshing book because you were prepared unfashionably to stand up against this idea that we're all going to hell in a handcart and uh, and and that actually quite the contrary that for most people most of the time uh, whether rich or poor in most countries life is considerably better than it was and we can have every expectation that it will continue to get better you don't seem to have won that argument though Matt because there's so much of this Extinction Rebellion, you know, that's risen now and this, this apocalyptic fear of COVID-19. You're going to have to work harder, I think, to convince people of what I know. you said. It's, and, and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a passion of mine, this. And one of the reasons it's a passion of mine was when I was 15, 16, 17, I was a keen, uh, I think you'd call it now an environmentalist. Uh, I was keen on all the issues to do with the environment. And I was exceedingly pessimistic about the future of the world. And the reason I was so was because all the grown-ups were telling me pessimistic things. They were saying the population explosion was unstoppable, the pollution was getting worse, species were dying out, the rainforests were disappearing, the deserts were advancing, you know, all this stuff. And it came as quite a surprise to me that actually the world became a better place for most people and environmental trends improved. I mean, there were 5,000 humpback whales in the world when I was a boy. There are now 80,000, you know. So there's a lot of good news out there. People are living longer. They're dying. Of, uh, their children are dying less. There's infectious diseases are on the retreat, with some exceptions, obviously, um, uh, etc. People are getting happier. They're healthier. They're, they're less likely to starve. These extraordinary improvements. Forest cover globally is increasing. Most people don't know that. So it, it became a passion of mine to point out that the apocalyptic predictions were wrong. Um, and why do they keep getting made? Because that's the way of getting in the media. Frankly, you know, if you if you go on the media and say, well, yeah, the climate change. Is, does happen and it's a small problem but on the whole we're not, we don't need to worry about it for a few more decades and and it's a relatively slow burn problem and we probably should be more worried about epidemics then the bbc said sorry we'll call you back we're not interested in talking to you uh, whereas if you went on and said do you know what in the next 10 years we're going to run out of food and we're going to have to start eating each other and then the species is going to go extinct they said can you come on the evening news and say that straight away so the the the, the bias in the media towards talking about any kind of apocalyptic predictions is quite extraordinary. And that's partly because we have a bias in, we're all of us more interested in apocalyptic stories. But notice what was happening. In January this year, Extinction Rebellion reached a sort of peak of media exposure and was really all over the place with these utterly apocalyptic predictions and quite normal, sensible people were believing it. 
And frankly, they were looking in the wrong direction. We should have been paying more attention to epidemics uh, as a threat um, rather than that. The World Health Organization in 2015 put out a statement that the greatest threat to human health, not welfare, health, in the 21st century is climate change. Now, the World Health Organization is charged with stopping us dying of pandemics. That suggests to me it was not doing its day job. It should have been focused on infectious diseases more than it was. Um, so uh, I, I feel very strongly about this. And I wrote that book, The Rational Optimist, in 2010, saying the world has been getting better and is likely to go on getting better. And everyone, as I went around the world over the next few years talking about it, people would say, well, you can't still believe that. Have you seen what's happened to the financial crisis? Or have you seen what's happened in the war in Ukraine? Or have you looked at the Ebola epidemic? You know, come on, you know, you must now be a pessimist given what's happening. And of course, they're now saying that to me about COVID. You can't still be an optimist. Well, I'm saying, uh, actually, the last 10 years have been incredible years for poor people. They've not been great years for rich countries, but someone like Ethiopia or Mozambique has had a spectacular 10 years. Uh, doubling the average income of their people, almost getting rid of malnutrition in countries where before that people said it couldn't be done. It can't follow. Africa can't follow Asia into prosperity. Well, it's doing so at a rapid rate. Um, HIV is on the decline. Malaria, the 1990s, malaria was getting worse. Huge number of predictions saying because of climate change, it's going to get dramatically worse in the 21st century. It's going to go back into Europe and other places where it's long extinct. Well, in 2003, the graph turned downwards and the, mortality, the annual mortality from malaria has now halved. That's an amazing human achievement, um, largely down to a simple innovation, the insecticide-treated bed net championed by the Gates Foundation. So it's innovation that will solve these problems. Uh, it's innovation that will give us a bright future. Not everything's going to go right in the future, but a lot of things are, and we should... We've got to stop indoctrinating our children in apocalyptic predictions because I think it's irresponsible of us. Let's give them the facts straight. A lot of people have noticed, and, and I think this is part of what you're saying, a, a, a distinct polarisation in debate uh, and, a, and a sort of widening of the gap between what we might loosely call left and right. Uh, Jonathan Haidt talks about this in, in, in context of the... American universities that they they always used to be a little bit left, but now they've kind of left a long way left. You yes. came up with your book with something that I thought might be at least partly an explanation for this. You've already talked about the importance of search engines, but there came a point where search engines started to individualize searches. So, you know, my neighbor might Google BP and get uh, environmental threat. I think this is an example you, you have in your book, whereas I as a good capitalist, might Google BP and I get investment opportunity. So, um, Correct. But the consequence of this, surely, is that we live in two different search bubbles, you know, uh, that, that I, I could call up um, just about any of the real hot-button issues now and end up with a completely different five pages of things to go to on Google than somebody who's perhaps, uh, you know, a little bit more progressive. Yeah, I think I think th this is right that the that the personalization of search and social media has driven us into filter bubbles and echo chambers that reinforce our prejudices that polarize political views in a way that we didn't see coming and I certainly didn't see it coming. I was a utopian optimist about the internet. I thought uh, 
it was going to be marvelous. We were all going to see each other's point of view. We would all uh, share all information freely. Well, it hasn't turned out like that. And it does seem like um, social media in particular is a polarizing technology, which radio was in its early days too. It played a very large part in the rise of the dictators in the 1920s, 1930s. Um, so there are worrying parallels there that we have to tame this technology and indeed you could argue that printing was equally a polarizing technology uh, in the 1500s martin luther was the most successful printing innovator he was by far the best-selling author of the time uh, and what was he doing he was driving people into opposition to the catholic church and ending uh, and causing centuries of religious warfare now you can say rightly so that the catholic church was ripe for a bit of challenge but it it does worry me that these new communication technologies when they're in their youth seem to have a habit of making the world a nastier place for a while we have to get through this and get to the other side i don't want to disinvent social media and i think it's wonderful that you know people can have friends all over the world and and not be isolated or lonely like they would have been in rural villages in the past say but but there are downsides to some of these technologies as well yeah we, we always like to end on a on a redemptive note here uh, and i guess we're heading towards that but uh, <laughs> you know these there, there are very very many good things uh, to digital technology and the internet we we're showing we're demonstrating one right now uh, and um, you know people have all learned to do zoom now it was a word that wasn't in people's vocabulary six months ago and, and everybody does it all the time now uh, all the other video platforms uh, and that's a technology that's been around a bit but it's just coming into its own so coming out of this crisis we're going to have a much much more uh, educated uh, population when it comes to IT and that's surely got to lead to some some great advances I do agree with that. I think what, what's happened is we've reached some sort of critical mass where you can now assume that your chum in Australia uh, is geared up to do Zoom in a way that you couldn't a year ago. Um, and I mean, I remember, you know, well, A, I'd never used Teams. Uh, I don't think I'd ever use Zoom before the pandemic. I'd use Skype, you know, but the video conferencing technologies have come to the point where, where once it, it's a bit like email. When email came along in the early 1990s, I was an early adopter. But nobody else seemed to have email. I was, it was just a few academics I knew. And so I actually gave up email. I said, there's no point in having this. I, I can't communicate with most of the people I want to communicate with. Uh, I'll go back to the fax machine. Um, but then there came a point when everybody did have email, and then it was really useful. So I think we've reached the point where video conferencing is now uh, available. And I mean, I've I'm talking to you in Australia. I've talked to people in Ecuador. I've talked to people in the United States uh, during the period when I've been launching my book. Uh, much as I love Australia, it's a very long way to get there and have a, re <laughs> a real event there. So I suspect it'll be a lot easier to do a lot more of this. Um, and uh, while you know travel is great, I think there will be differences in the world following this. We've now discovered how easy it is to have meetings all around the world face-to-face, real-time, um, with a big audience, but without the hassle of airport check-in, security, long flight, hotel, you know, taxi, all that stuff. 
<laughs> and uh, just to give your book a sly plug here, Matt, I mean, one great innovation for me is is the audio book. Uh, it was brilliant that you brought out an audio book as soon as you you brought out the written book because that, I'm afraid to say, is how I read most of my books these days. So me too. thank you for that. Me too. And, I read more more audio now than I, than I read on on and 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 uh, it's interesting. The publishers didn't make much uh, uh, talk about audio 10 years ago. Now it's a very big part of, w- of what they produce. They, it's, it's a big chunk of their sales. It's very important that the author reads his own book. I had to go into my linen closet to make an, a makeshift soundproof room to do it in. It took four days. I loved reading it. It was fascinating. I made a hell of a lot of mistakes and I had to reread sentences and things. But it's been fun doing it. And, and as you say, you know, it reaches a big audience that way. Yeah, well, the point you make is right. We share a publisher, Harper Collins, and when my book came out in 2013, I said, "What about an audio book?" And they said, "Are you kidding?" <laughs> but now I think it's really yeah. In that time, <laughs> and I still haven't done it. Maybe one day. But Matt, thank you very much. Your book is available with Harper Collins, and it's available, of course, on Kindle. Another great modern innovation. It's been great talking to you, and uh, thank you very much for what you're contributing to this very fraught debate on science. Well, Nick, I'm really grateful to, to you for the chance to, to, to talk and uh, thanks so much for, um, for having me on. Thanks, mate. You've been listening to the MRC podcast with me, Nick Cater. If you'd like to join the growing band of people who are supporting this work, why not become a subscriber to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month? go to www.mrc.org. I'm Nick Cater. Thank you for listening.